0: Oh, good, bright, and sunny morning to you. My name is CJ, and I have the privilege of reading God's Word to you. Uh, today's scripture reading is from the first letter of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you'd like to follow along, you can turn to page 1021 in the Black Pew Bible. Uh, you can pull out your iDevice, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. Uh, so please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but that does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. <coughs> Excuse me. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes.
1: This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray as we look together at God's word. Gracious Father, it is near to your heart that we want to be. As we think about the message of First John and uh the portrait of what an intimate life and relationship with you looks like. Uh, We ask this morning as we open your word that you would draw us closer to your heart and that your word would speak to our hearts. Uh, Lord, give us ears to hear you. Give us eyes to see you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when Carissa and I began dating uh, back in 2001, uh, at one point, uh, probably a month, a few months into our relationship, her mom asked her a question. She wanted her to list three things about me that she didn't like. And, of course, she couldn't come up with anything. (laughs) Not because it wasn't there, mind you but because we were in that proverbial rose-colored glasses phase where neither could do any wrong. We were never going to fight or have a disagreement. And of course, that was her mom's point, you know, to try and open her eyes. And you realize if you marry this guy, you will be stuck with him forever. You need to know, you know, what you're getting into. Well, several months after that... Um, Actually, the day before our wedding, my good friend and mentor Brian uh, pulled me aside and said to me, you will never be angrier with another human being than you will be with your wife, but you will never be more enthralled with or more deeply committed to another human being than you will be with your wife. And he was right on both accounts for both of us. Relationships are good. They are good. Whether we're talking about marriage or friendship or parenting or being a good neighbor. But relationships are hard because people are sinful. We do stupid things in our relationships. We do selfish things. We hurt each other. Even though we might not want to. Even though we may not realize we're doing it at the time. We do it. We sin. And there is no more destructive force in relationship than sin. Relationships at their best are when each person is more concerned about the other. That's when it's at its best. That we want what's best for them. We take pleasure in what they take pleasure in. If you're a parent... Uh, you know, how many of you when, uh, this past Christmas, how many of you were more excited to see what your kids got you than you were at seeing their reaction to what you got them? That's, that's what you want. That's the best. Seeing that. We delight in their delight. When you love someone, you're more concerned about the other than you are about themselves, about yourself. Sin takes that and turns it upside down and messes the whole thing up. And when the Bible talks about sin, it's talking first and foremost about our disobedience to God, uh, about our our rebellion against God. But uh, throughout Scripture, that disobedience to God is often directed towards other people as well. So if I slander my friend, not only am I dishonoring God and disobeying his word, I'm also destroying my friend's reputation or damaging it. And so sin is both a vertical and a horizontal uh, thing, and it is an enemy of relationship. Sin is an enemy of relationship. And that's not hard to illustrate. I think all of us could probably come up with several examples of how sin messes up relationship. I mean, you think about what happens when a friend, when someone you love and trust uh, that you're close to, when that friend ignores you. Uh, or betrays you. Or says something that hurts you. you know, what does that do to your relationship? Where there was once affection and joy, there's now a sadness. Uh, even an anger. There's a, this cloud hanging over your friendship. Drowning out the sunlight. Or you think about the, the other side of it. When you do something stupid uh, and selfish... And hurt someone you're close to. Uh, do something you you shouldn't or say something that just kind of crushes them in an instant. Where there was once confidence and intimacy, there's now shame and insecurity. There's now guilt and suspicion. I feel guilty. I don't really deserve this person uh, because of the way I treated them. I'm not sure where I'm at with them or whether or not they'll accept me anymore. And so what happens is that our sin can slowly build a wall in our relationships. And the higher we let that wall get, and the darker we let those clouds become, the quicker we lose sight of the other person completely. So that we become completely fixated on ourselves. We walk in a darkness that can't see more than two inches in front of our own nose. And everything becomes about us. Our desires, our expectations, our level of fulfillment, our sense of satisfaction or happiness. In the darkness we become blind to our temptation, blind to our sin, blind to the damage that we're inflicting on others. Sin is an enemy of relationship. And if that's true on the human plane, then it is infinitely true when it comes to our relationship with god we cannot know god intimately unless we do something about the sin that separates us and blinds us without doing something without something happening to deal with that sin genuine intimacy and relationship with god is impossible And that's what the Apostle John wants to help us sort out in our passage this morning in his first letter. If you're just joining us, we're working through the letters of John, First John through Third John, which are kind of like a poetic sermon on the Gospel of John. Uh, So what John is doing in these letters is he's taking the message of his Gospel, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, He's taking that message and then he's applying it to one of the churches who found themselves in danger of departing from that message uh, through the influence of several false teachers who had at one point apparently been among them but that had now come out and was still trying to influence them, claiming to kind of have this secret track toward relationship with God. Uh, But their track, however, downplayed sin and disregarded or discounted the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so John is writing to warn them about these teachers, but also to reassure them in the truth of the gospel that they have already believed, that they don't need to improve upon it or add to it or move on from it, but that Christ and his work on the cross is and always will be sufficient for intimate, genuine relationship with God. So far, John has shown us that intimacy with God, uh, this real communion, is first of all Christ-centered. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It is anchored in the gospel message that the apostles preached. And second, that intimacy is holy. It requires obedience and confession of sin, which is what we saw last week in 1, verses 5 through 10. So when we come to chapter 2 this morning, What John does here is basically take both of these points, the centrality of Christ and the holiness of knowing God, and he brings them together in order to address this problem of sin disrupting our relationship with God. We all have a sin problem that threatens our intimacy, which means that an essential part of growing in intimacy with God is simply not sinning stopping that, or sinning much less. Uh, John says in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There's a sin problem that we've got to deal with. He's going to help us deal with that. But, you know, if you stop and look at that. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Is it really that easy? Just stop. Stop it. You know. It doesn't work with my kids. You know, they're doing something they're not supposed to do. I say stop, or with our dog even. Why, you know, is it really, you know, want to know God better? Easy, just stop sinning. Why is that so hard? What about the sin that we've already committed? You know, the sin that fills us with guilt and shame and makes us want to hide from God or to kind of turn our relationship with God into this little, uh, game of performing for him in order to try and make it up to him, win his affection again, um, even if I stop sinning completely from this point on, that sin and guilt still has to be dealt with, and unless it 's dealt with, I feel a wall between me and god and what about the fact that, according to chapter one i 'm still going to sin i 'm still going to to give in to temptation and mess up we we face temptation daily, real temptations that are harder to overcome than someone telling me, just don't do it. If it were that easy, I would. But I fail. And you fail. We all fail. John told us in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is an enemy of relationship with God. And so somehow not sinning becomes essential to that relationship. But as one author reflects, knowing God by not sinning is a goal as lofty as climbing Mount Everest without food, shoes, gloves, or an oxygen supply. Yet, it is obtainable through Mount Calvary. How do we prevent sin, which once controlled our lives, from ruling our lives? The answer, according to John, is Jesus' advocacy and his example. His advocacy and his example. That's John's answer to the sin that threatens our relationship with God and really with every relationship that we have. Verses 1 through 2 show us Christ our advocate. Because we have sinned and will sin, we need an advocate before the Father. And then verses 3 through 11 show us Christ, our example. Because we have Christ, we don't have to sin. We can say no to sin and yes to obedience and love through the power of the Spirit. It is possible to obey God. Maybe not perfectly, but it is possible to obey God. We don't have to give in. He provides a way out. Christ is our example for that. So Christ, our advocate, and Christ, our example. And both of those are essential to growing in our intimacy with the Father. So look first at verses 1 through 2 where we see Christ, our advocate. Verse 1, my little children. Notice John's love for this congregation he's writing to throughout the book. My my little children, beloved, he's always in, addressing them in terms of endearment. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, how do we deal with the guilt and the shame of our sin that slowly builds this wall between us? Sins in the past, sins in the present. How do we deal with that in our relationship with God? We trust in Christ, our advocate. So, what does it mean that Jesus is our advocate? Uh, What are we talking about? Well, an advocate as uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones explains, is one who represents another, who stands before a court and he presents the case of someone else. He represents this person and puts forward the pleas. And so you think of a defense attorney. That's kind of our modern category for an advocate. Uh, that's what Jesus is for us as he sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven. He is our advocate interceding on our behalf appealing on the basis of his own blood in defense of our sin. You think of the song we sang a little bit earlier this morning, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Jesus Christ is our advocate. Now in thinking of that picture, uh, we need to be careful not to extend the metaphor too far in that, uh, you know, some of our courtroom dramas, you have kind of the advocate who's the altruistic against this angry judge who doesn't want to to let the guy off or something like that. That's not the picture here. Uh, we should not picture that Jesus is appealing before an unwilling or forgetful God. Lloyd-Jones continues, it was not that the son decided to come on his own, and then having done so, is pleading urgently and passionately for our deliverance. No, it was the Father who sent the Son to rescue us. We can't forget that important part of this picture. The fact that we have a defense in heaven for our sin is a result of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their love and for their glory, planning before the foundation of the world that they would bring an eternal salvation for their people. It is God's plan, not just Christ, the whole Trinity together. And so on the basis, uh, of His blood, Jesus makes our defense. And you think about it, you know, His work is cut out for Him. He's Advocating for me, for starters, I mean, that's, that's a hard case to make in terms of, you know, being accepted by the Father. I know my sin. I know my failures. And He's doing that for all of us. His job is to make a case, a defense for people who are actually guilty of the charges that have been leveled against them. We really have messed up. We really have rebelled against our Father. And so on what basis is he able to make our plea for mercy? I mean, we're guilty. God is holy. Uh, We saw last week, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. How can a sinner who's guilty have relationship with a holy God? Well, there are two uh, reasons Jesus is qualified and able to make our defense. Uh, two reasons that John points out here. First, because of his character. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Though we are unrighteous, though we are actually guilty uh, of ignoring God, of not keeping his word, of, of putting ourselves first and hurting each other, uh, of ignoring him, dishonoring him. Jesus isn't guilty of any of that. He is the righteous. He perfectly obeyed the will of his father he was tempted in every in every way just like we are but yet without sin and because he is righteous he is uniquely able to stand in our place before his holy father as our representative offering his righteous life in place of ours he's the righteous that qualifies him The second reason he's qualified to advocate on our behalf is because he himself has paid the debt of our sin in full on the cross. And that's what John talks about in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, we don't use the word propitiation in daily conversation. It's kind of a technical term. Uh, but it refers to the kind of sacrifice that bears God's holy anger against sin. A wrath-bearing sacrifice. Uh, some translations will, uh, will translate it with the word atoning sacrifice. That gets at the picture as well. And so if you think of the Old Testament, the, the sacrifices in the temple, or you think of the Passover lamb, The idea is what we call substitutionary atonement. So there's a substitute. God is judging sin, which he must do if he's a righteous God. But he pours out his wrath on a substitute, like a goat or a bull in the Old Testament, instead of Israel, so that he can deal justly with sin and yet mercifully with sinners at the same time the substitute takes our place and and all of those old testament sacrifices were ultimately pointing forward to the great and final sacrifice which Jesus himself offered as both the great high priest and the lamb together the book of hebrews describes it like this hebrews 9:11 through 12 when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, the tent in heaven, the temple of heaven, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you hear that word? He secures through his blood an eternal redemption. Redemption, a redemption that cannot be taken away. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, we are secure. What he has done is enough. Jesus's blood does not simply wipe the slate clean and then hand it back to us and say, you know, What are you going to do now? We have the chance to dirty it up again or whatever. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He takes the slate and he shatters it against the cross. There are no more charges against us. His righteous life, his substitutionary death, we are declared in the right with God. We have an advocate before the Father. And that is the only way that an intimate relationship with God is possible. The guilt that keeps me from wanting to hide from God or wanting to, to just kind of hijack my relationship and turn it into a show, Jesus does away with that. He's cleansed us from that. His blood is enough to cover all of our sins, our sins of our past, of our present, of our future. He doesn't have to go back to the cross again later. It was enough. His blood was enough to cover the sins of the entire world if everyone were to place their faith in him, it was enough. Jesus Christ is our advocate. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel guilty about our sin. We should. When we break our word or when we sin against God, we ought to feel guilty about that. We ought to be sorry and sorrowful when we hurt someone else. We want to desire To make things right, we should repent of our sin daily. It is an enemy of relationship. But the first step of walking in repentance is recognizing that Jesus Christ is our advocate. That, you know, He's writing this so that we don't sin. That's the goal. But if we do, we have an advocate with the Father. And it's only on His basis that we can have this relationship with God. To recognize that when you come before the Father in all of your sin and all of your guilt, when you come before him in prayer and worship, when he looks upon you, he does not see that sin as defining you. He doesn't see your shame or your failures. He sees the righteousness of his son. And he loves you. That is the truth of Christ, our Advocate. He makes intimacy with God possible by dealing with the guilt and shame of our sin. But we do need to do something about the sin. We can't, for that reason, just go on walking in disobedience to God. We need to grow in repentance. Sin is an enemy of relationship. And to help us learn how to say no to that sin and yes to obedience and love, John moves on to show us that Christ is not only our advocate, he's also our example. That's verses 3 through 11. So look at verses 3 through 6 with me. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, if you were with us last week when we looked at verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, um, you probably notice a few echoes and parallels there. Uh, John has a habit of doing that uh, and making his point. He covers the same ground over and over again. And and so there's some similarities here, especially in kind of holding before us the kinds of scenarios which might assure us of our relationship with God. If you do this, then you can have confidence here. Or that might cause us to ask the uncomfortable question, is my relationship with God real? You can say that you know him, but if you're doing these things, you're a liar. And so he's, he's holding up those kinds of scenarios before us again. And like last week, the mark of genuine relationship with God is holiness, is obedience, keeping his commands. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. He's not saying that keeping God's commands is what earns us our relationship, um, but it is evidence that we have a relationship. We live as though we've actually met God and been redeemed by him. Um, obedience is evidence, and it is necessary evidence, such that, verse 4, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John puts a lot of emphasis on obedience in this book. He came out of the gate making that point, and he hasn't let up yet, and he's not going to let up through the rest of the book. So you just be prepared. We're going to talk about obedience a lot. But we need to understand that he's not so excited or emphatic about obedience because he's you know a legalist, who thinks that our worth or our value are tied to our performance for God. That's not at all what drives him. He's passionate about our obedience because he's passionate about our relationship with God and genuine intimacy and communion with God. He wants to see that happen and he knows that sin is an enemy of that intimacy. It's an enemy of that relationship, which means that obedience is a friend to our intimacy with God. It is a benefit. It is, as he puts it in verse 5, an act of love. We obey God not because of, of some drudgery or duty, but out of love. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And when he says love of God here, he's almost certainly talking about Our love for God. He makes that point elsewhere several times, that if you love God, you will keep his commands. Obedience is not duty or drudgery. It's an act of love. It is intensely relational. So so often we, we kind of think of it in this category of a list of rules we're supposed to keep as opposed to a person that we have the privilege of loving. That's the category John gives us for obedience. And and if you think about it, what is it that causes us to disobey? When I walk away from God or when I do things I know I'm not supposed to, what's going on in my heart that allows me to do that? Somewhere in my heart, I'm doubting God's goodness. I don't think he's really going to keep his word or I don't necessarily agree with his evaluation of what's good for me. I'm afraid that if I actually obey him, I'm going to miss out on something that's really good for me. So I doubt his goodness, I doubt his wisdom. Ultimately, I have a relational disconnection with God. I'm not trusting him, I'm not loving him, I'm suspicious of him or frustrated with him, and so I'm going to do something I want to do instead of follow him. Sin is born out of a relational disconnect with God. But when my heart is filled with love for God, when my heart is overflowed in recognizing who he is, what he's done for me through the cross, and that that's at the forefront of my mind and my heart, what else am I going to do but obey? How can I be overflowing with love for God and then turn around and ignore him in the same motion? It just doesn't make sense. Obedience flows out of a love for God. And who else can show us what it looks like to resist temptation, and to obey the Father out of love then Jesus Christ our example. Verse 6 is in many ways the heart of this passage. Uh, so starting in the middle of verse 5, he says, By this we may be sure that we are in him. You want to have confidence in your relationship with God, here's a simple test. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We abide with Christ by following his example. So how did Jesus walk? Well, you look back to the Gospels, you look back to the Gospel of John, we see that he walked in communion with his Father. He did not come to accomplish his own plan or achieve his own glory. He came to honor his Father and to accomplish his will. So John 4, verse 34. My food... Jesus says is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work or john five seventeen My father is working until now, and I am working. His father's plan and his father 's glory were always at the forefront. He spent time with his father. you think about it it's, it's an interesting uh sometimes we can be reading through the gospels and just completely miss these little uh details, but how often Jesus retreats from ministry in order to go and pray. I mean, he's the son of God. Really? Does he need a break? He needed communion with his father. He wanted communion with his father. And if, if Jesus is our example, then walking in communion with the father, walking in prayer, spending time with God in prayer and in his word is a necessary part of abiding in Christ. And, frankly, I don't know if this is your experience, but I would guess that it is. I know it's my experience. When I'm abiding, when I'm continually spending time with the Father and the Word and in prayer, it's a lot easier to say no to sin. Because my heart is so much fuller with God and His love. And so to walk as Jesus walked is to commune with the Father. Second, Jesus walked by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's another detail we often miss when we're reading the Gospels. That Jesus, being fully God and fully human at the same time, still walked in communion with and dependence on the Holy Spirit during his ministry. The Spirit helped inaugurate his ministry at his baptism. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And having resisted him, Luke tells us that Jesus emerges from the wilderness, quote, in the power of the Holy Spirit when he begins his ministry. And so if Jesus, our representative, walked in the power of the Holy Spirit, we too must depend on the Holy Spirit and not our own power when it comes to following God. God is not asking us in the face of temptation, hey, just try a little bit harder this time. You know, just kind of tighten your belt and 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 do better this time around. He's not asking us just to try harder. Obedience is hard work. Make no mistake about that. But as Paul puts it, we struggle with all his energy, which so powerfully works within us. We fight not with the strength that comes from digging down deeper inside of ourselves. We fight with the strength that comes from heaven. Through the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So he communed with his Father. He walked by the Spirit. Third, Jesus walked in love. He walked in love for his Father. John 14.31 I do as the Father has commanded me so the world may know that I love the Father. He walked in love for his disciples, John fifteen nine, As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. He walked in love for the world around him, John three sixteen, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus calls us to follow his example of walking in love. John 15:12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's where John goes in the second part of our passage, verses 7 through 11. In verse 3, he told us that we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And now in these verses, he zeroes in on a very specific command, an ancient command that God's people have had from the beginning all the way back to Deuteronomy and, and before, but which has taken new shape and new urgency now that the true light of the world has dawned, this command to love one another within the family of God. Now, because John is going to return to this subject three more times in this letter, uh, we're not going to spend much time on it today. Uh, We'll look more deeply at this uh, aspect of following God and abiding with Christ in the weeks to come. Just enough to state the obvious, that that following Christ means loving his family. Following Christ means loving his family. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light... And hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Sin is an enemy of relationship, of all relationships. And if you're willing to tolerate sin, in your relationships with others, especially within the body of Christ, then you can be assured beyond a shadow of the doubt that you are in fact tolerating sin in your relationship with God as well. You cannot compartmentalize your love for God and your love for His children. If you love God, you will love His children. If you're hating His children, you're walking in hatred toward God. That's His point. Again, we'll, we'll look more uh, closely at that in the weeks ahead. But we all have a, a sin problem that threatens our intimacy with God. Don't let sin come between you and God. That's John's point. Don't let the sin that you feel guilty for stop you from going to God because you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't let that sin that guilt, come between your relationship. And don't let the sin you're tempted to do come between you and God. Because you have an example in Christ of what it looks like to say no to sin and yes to obedience and love. And you have the same spirit within you that Jesus depended on and that raised Christ from the dead. Say no to sin and yes to Christ. And enjoy... The love of the Father in communion with His people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, there is so much, so much before us, so many ways that we have let you down or we have let your children down. And Lord, when we allow ourselves to take it on board, it is overwhelming. God, I pray that you would allow us to take it on board and be overwhelmed by the depth of our sin, that you would bring us under conviction. Not so that we simply feel bad, though we should, but so that we can taste and see the love we have through Christ our Savior. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And Lord, we want to taste the sweetness of Christ in our relationship with you, in our relationships with others. And so I pray that your spirit would expose in our hearts darkness that we need to confess to you. That you would convict us of ways that we are harming one another, doing things we should not do or not doing things we should. That we would bring those before you, even before your people, in confession and repentance. And remember and experience and enjoy the love that we have in you that is greater than our sin. Lord, thank you that there is nothing we can do or have done that cannot or is not covered by your blood. Help us walk in intimacy with you, God, not afraid, but at home. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.